Welcome to the Later in Life Planning Show with Patrick Colley, brought to you by Keystone Elder Law, right here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, here's your host, Patrick Colley. Thank you very much for joining me for another episode of the, the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. At Keystone Elder Law, we try to shield the middle class from the costs and the challenges of getting older. Primarily, we are building that shield using the tools of estate planning, the power of attorney, the health care power of attorney and living will, the last will and testament, various kinds of asset protection trusts. If you'd like to learn more about this, we offer free education every single week about these planning tools and the overall strategy to save your hard-earned property from predictable and costly threats. You can go to KeystoneElderLaw.com and use the Workshops tab to get registered for an upcoming free online workshop going over the details of estate planning and asset protection, as well as the maze of long-term care options. But regular listeners of this show know that I, I talk about far more than just the legal planning for the later years of life. As important as I think it is for middle-class families, shielding yourself from the costs and challenges of the later years of life requires an understanding of more than just the legal and financial issues. Just last week, I spoke with Zeddy Neidig of Legend Senior Living about isolation among older adults and the well-established link between loneliness and terrible health outcomes. Zeddy shared stories of people finding connection, purpose, and joy that they often did not expect when they moved into a community of peers and they started engaging in activities to stimulate the mind and the spirit. This week's show is related to the last one in a way. And I promise you, this is the later in life planning show, not the doom and gloom show. We're not focusing on the darkness, we're fo focusing on talking away from the darkness. This is important planning. There are important insights to be gained from what really is a very common, all too common experience among people in the later years of life. In the next several weeks, the holiday season will bring families together. Sometimes family members will go weeks or months without seeing each other in person. And last week's show uh, as well as this one today will give you some important information to keep in mind while gathering with family members. Just as last week we talked about the importance of having a purpose and how that purpose can be found in connection with others and activities to develop talents, we will speak today about a bleak outcome that too frequently results from losing a sense of purpose or a sense of value to other people. The topic today is the prevalence of suicide and some strategies for speaking about the subject with a loved one. My guest is Lauren Marshall, who is a volunteer advocate for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Lauren, thank you for being here with me. Thank you so much, Patrick, for inviting me. Well, it's this is a difficult subject, but I think speaking with you makes it a whole lot easier. It makes it an approachable subject and one that really needs to be talked about, even if it's uncomfortable. Uh, so I'm going to keep referring back, Lauren, to the AFSP website, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. That's AFSP.org. But tell us a little bit about the core mission and strategies of the organization. Absolutely. 
The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is a voluntary health organization. We have a very strong and to-the-point mission, which is save lives and bring hope to those affected by suicide. Uh, This started in 1987, much like a lot of grassroots organizations do. And so it was at the table, you know, with some researchers, with some families that were impacted by suicide, and they thought, we need to do more. And so after years, um, we have grown to over 50 chapters, including, you know, presence in in D.C. And we have, the reason I say it's a voluntary health organization, because largely 80% of all funds raised through the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention go back into the community. And so the strategies we have, we pick really four core. And so that's funding scientific research educating the public about mental health and suicide prevention, advocating for public policies, which include mental health and suicide prevention, and then, of course, supporting survivors of loss or those affected by suicide. And it's not like uh, that. It's kind of surprising, I guess I should say, that it took until 1987. But the this is an issue that has gotten, at least as far as available data I, I have found, gotten worse over time. So, you know, right on the uh, AFSP.org website, there is a chart showing both nationally and you can search by state. And it sure looks like the numbers have steadily risen of uh, deaths by suicide from 2011 or so up through 2019. And then there was a dip uh, in 19 and 20, but it's on the rise again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, is this, I, I, I guess I'll put the question to you. I mean, is there uh, is this uh, something that has been charted over time, something that, that the organization is uh, is focused on, this rise in, in the suicide rate? That's a great question. And the data that you can find, which is very accessible, it's on our website, AFSP.org. And those statistics are from the CDC puts out a report. So it's done every so many years. And so the data that's present now is from 2020, And so they publish it two years after the fact. So if that makes sense. Um, And what I will say is when it comes to looking at the data like that, um, you have to understand that what's great and part of the core strategy is when we're talking about that scientific research, we're really able to look at different buckets where maybe it's the underserved population, maybe it's the aging population, African-Americans, Asian Hawaiian Islanders, Pacific Islanders, um, where we're able to target, and it's they've done a AFSP has done a great job of getting researchers that are from these underrepresented groups studying these underrepresented groups, and so we're coming out with a lot of rich data, and even on our website you can find those resources specific to those underserved populations because the interventions look different for every human. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad you brought up the different uh, populations because, you know, pertinent to this show, the Later in Life Planning show, it appears that the rate of suicide is highest among not just older people, but men over the age of 85 and, and over 65 even. It's very high. Absolutely. And that is something that, to your point, the show last week talking about that isolation, that's just one factor. 
you know, as we'll talk today, suicide is multi-causal. There's a number of factors. It's not just one thing, even though our our brains or our hearts want to think it's that one thing. It's so much more than just one element. And you're right, you know, in the state of Pennsylvania, um, yes, that number is increasing for those 85 and older. I would also say, you know, in Pennsylvania, there are rising rates between 25 to 34, which is on par with the national statistics with the aging, especially the younger male and then the aging white males. And then historically, um, we're seeing in Pennsylvania and nationally that the means, the lethal means is firearms and over half of these deaths. Right. And I I was looking at wherever I could find this kind of information. The AFSP.org website is fantastic. There is another organization, the National Council, well, actually the National Council on Aging, uh, which I look to for a lot of different resources, says that while older adults comprise just 12% of the population, they make up 18% of suicides. Just another way of saying that there's sort of this disproportionate number there. And I think that'll get into some of the risk factors. And and maybe we can we can talk about that. Because of course, I see in at Keystone Elder Law, some of the stresses that are somewhat unique to older people fearing that they're going to run out of money, the loss of their their self sufficiency, their independence, because now they can't they don't have the mobility or they're, you know, they just can't see themselves as worthy of life anymore when they've uh, have some decline in health. There's just any number of, you know, when you say multi-causal, I, I just, I start seeing a number of them coming together. But, you know, let's talk about the risk factors. Absolutely. Well, you already did your research, Patrick, so kudos to you. <laughs> Where there is, there's so many different parts, and this is the beauty of talking about this, because we're starting to piece together not just risk factors, but maybe even some warning signs when you look at things this way. So we break down risk factors almost in three areas where it can be health-related, environmental, and then, of course, historical. So let's first look at the physical, so the health-related. That could be mental health issues, or it could be physical health issues. So we know very much the intersection between chronic pain and depression, for example. So there's a lot of complex health needs that can be going on. When you look at environmental factors, you just listed it beautifully. You're talking about maybe loss of job, financial concerns. Um, You're talking about maybe major life transitions, losing that sense of independence sometimes. All of these things combined, and then you add a historical factor, which could be maybe that is previous attempts, family history, a genetic predisposition, childhood trauma even. So many of these things. And when they come together, you, and you, you can kind of uh, put yourself in the mind of the person that, boy, they must be under a lot of pressure with all of these things at once. More on this with Lauren Marshall, a volunteer advocate with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. When we come back from a break, you are listening to the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law on News Radio WHP 580. Now, more of the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. I'm speaking today with Lauren Marshall, a volunteer advocate with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Their website is afsp.org. And Lauren, before the break, you were breaking down some of the risk factors, some of the contributing factors that might cause a person to 
seriously consider ending their own life. And this is just incredibly important for people to know as families get together or as they just track how their loved ones are doing of any age, but especially when the uh, deaths by suicide among older adults make up such a disproportionate uh, number of those deaths. But you were, you were talking about the different ways to look at risk factors. Absolutely. And so when we look at, and this is all beautifully laid out, multiple parts of our website. Um, one is if you find our get help section, you can break down different things to look for there. But what I will say about those is when somebody is maybe contemplating wanting to end their life, it shows up in different ways. So it can be verbal with a blanket statement, you know, I'm thinking about killing myself. Or it could be, I just can't do this anymore. Maybe they start to give away certain possessions. Um, maybe they start to retreat where they used to be quite active in certain social circles. And then all of a sudden, where is that person? I haven't seen them lately. Um, maybe they are uh, trying to tidy up loose ends financially and assign responsibilities to certain people where otherwise maybe they're healthier. It seems uncharacteristic. These all together, again, it requires a conversation, really, to lean in and have that conversation with that person. And I like that you've emphasized in a couple of different ways that it, it's really all together. It's not necessarily any one of these things. I mean, if somebody is tying up loose ends, well, that's exactly what I think people should do at, at various stages of life with, with what I do at Keystone Elder Law with mm -hmm. estate planning, legal and financial planning. That alone, of course, is when someone suddenly brings up, I want to update my will or something like that. That isn't a, a, a red flag. And not long ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago, I met with a woman and her very supportive uh, daughters, uh, adult daughters. And, you know, we were talking about one part of the plan, which was if you become incapacitated, what kind of uh, medical treatment would you want? What if it turns into a terminal situation? And she very bluntly said, I want, you know, to stop all my meds. I don't want any heroic measures. And then she, she explained why. She said she had, in the last several months, lost her uh, husband of 67 years. And she said, so why would I want to stick around? Now, you know, in a vacuum, I suppose that could cause alarm bells to go off. But otherwise, you know, it didn't look like she had neglected her hygiene. It didn't look like she was, um, you know, drooping in her. She was being assertive, in other words. So I was trying to read the whole picture. And, and I think her daughters were encouraging her to think of the children, the grandchildren and so forth. And and there are people who love you, which I was entirely appropriate. And I'm glad they did that. Um, but maybe that would be one factor where if you saw some of these other factors, now you have a, a picture that, that causes a little more concern. Absolutely. And it's looking at, and again, which requires, you know, kind of touch points, right, with that person. And sometimes maybe it's not necessarily the family that's the touch point. You know, maybe it's that friend, that neighbor, uh, that person at church, that person in your reading group, that is the person that you feel most comfortable talking about life with. 
in general, because let's face it, sometimes, you know, our families can be a trigger for us sometimes. <laughs> sure, sure. It, it can go both ways. You know, they're a greatest source of support sometimes and other times uh, there's history. And you, you talked right. about the h- historical. Um, but I love how the AFSP.org website breaks it down for, you know, if a person talks about, in other words, listen for them saying certain things about, obviously, suicide or feeling hopeless, having no reason to live, being a burden on others. And I hear that a lot of fear of being a burden on other people. Uh, but they also the, the website also says to look out for certain behaviors. Uh, and it's some of the things that you were just talking about where uh, they are isolating, they are, um, their sleep is is abnormal in one direction or another. They're giving things away. Um, but before you and I uh, uh, came to the the radio station, we were speaking about this subject, and you corrected me on something that I didn't realize was a myth. I think there probably are a lot of myths or misconceptions. And and I mentioned the holidays, and I don't know. It seemed to me that I guess maybe I was fixated on the idea that there are people who are alone. Maybe they lost a spouse. This is the first holiday alone. But actually, that's not the most common time when suicides occur. Tell me about that. Right. So you raise a great point because it is. I mean, and people need to embrace that fact that, yes, they, they are warranted to feel those feelings, especially during holiday months. However, statistically, we have seen more trends when it's going into the warmer months. So leaving the winter, going into the springtime, that seems to be more of the uptick of where we're seeing people die by suicide. And I I know that you and I, even before the break, we were talking about even during the pandemic. And, you know, there's still so much research being done there. But kind of, you know, you can think of it the same way we do with the holidays where Maybe the numbers started dipping down in 2019 and they didn't just start increasing till recently. Well, think about the massive amount of changes that people went through and did people lose their purpose? You know, were they going through significant transitions? Again, all these little pieces together that that warrants a conversation. Sure. Yeah, it was a very stressful time for a lot of people and in the, the world of older adults you know, having to go up to the window outside a nursing home, and that was as close as they could bond with their loved one of their whole, you know, adult life. And, but I think you're right, coming out of that winter into spring, and then realizing they don't, they feel like they don't have a purpose, they're not valued, um, you know, processing what they had gone through, and that's when things are going to happen. And so I think that maybe there's a practical takeaway there, which is, you know, at the holidays, be on the lookout for some of these risk factors or warning signs that you've described, but really focus on maybe what is, what are you looking forward to in the spring or in the summer? And what is your, you know, what is the purpose? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you even started the conversation about we're talking away the dark. So Talk Away the Dark actually is a campaign that we have available on the AFSP.org website. I love this campaign because there's a video right to start where a daughter is sitting with her father and she's noticing little things and she's asking him to kind of open up and talk about some of the things on his mind. And this whole site that you can visit, it gives great conversation starters about how to engage in conversations where it feels more fluid because I think sometimes people fear the question of, oh my gosh, well, Lauren, you know, or they, they'll ask us in general, 
from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. What do we say if someone says, yes, I, I feel like ending my life? Sometimes people might not come right out and say it, but exploring why a person feels a certain kind of way and then helping them pull out those protective factors with crafted questions that can easily show, well, oh, have you talked with your neighbor? You know, oh, yes, that's right. I haven't gotten in touch with her recently. What about, you know, did you finish that painting that you were going to do? There's little things that you can ask to pull out those protective factors because when you do it that way, it's like motivational interviewing where you're empowering that person to let them know that they still have that light. It's just on a dimmer switch. You got to turn it up. Right, because there are people who want that light in their life. Yes. Yeah, and I was looking at those conversation starters on the website uh, before we got together today, and it's kind of like anything else. You know, you want to practice this. You want to you want to think about it before you ever have to use it because they're a lot more insightful and smart than I would come up with on you know in the moment. I think, but you know, things like you know, uh, what is one thing you are looking forward to, and. Um, who makes you feel supported? You know, what are what are things that, that provide you joy? Um, and that's going to tell you their response is going to be awfully telling, I would imagine. 100%. So, and, and it's just different ways to come at the same thing. But these conversation starters, um, even when you start to see the risk factors that you talked about, the warning signs, you might ask some of these questions and be pleasantly surprised by the answer and maybe... Maybe that gives you, the, the concerned family member, uh, a little bit of hope and, and reassurance. But, but I think that it's really, uh, rather than, how are you doing? Or are you doing okay? To which the person's going to say, I'm good, or yes. They're, you know this, this really gets people talking and frames the conversation, like you said, in terms of empowerment and resources and support and you are loved and you are valued. All good stuff. We're going to come back and talk about this some more after a break. My guest today is Lauren Marshall, a volunteer advocate with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Their website is AFSP.org. We'll be back in a moment on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law, here on News Radio WHP 580. Welcome back to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580. Here's Patrick Colley. We are back on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. And following up on last week's episode, where we talked about how common it is for, especially for older adults, to become isolated and the well-established link between loneliness and really terrible health outcomes, we're speaking today about the warning signs, the risk factors, and really the support network and resources available when it comes to to suicide. My guest today is Lauren Marshall from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Their website is afsp.org. And Lauren, before the break, you were talking about an excellent program that AFSP has called Talk Away the Dark. And those conversation starters on the website are really well crafted, I think, to open up a window into what's going on with a person when you just see the risk factors and you're not even sure, do they really add up to something I should be concerned about? It can really draw out some helpful information. Um, I guess a follow-up question I have is, you know, at what point is it okay, if ever, to ask directly, are you thinking about suicide? In this moment. Okay. 
in this moment because we believe firmly that the greatest ally we have when it comes to preventing suicide is time. So by asking questions, we are creating more time and more space between that action. And I guess I'm not the first person to sort of uh, ask questions coming from a place of what if I say the wrong thing? You know, I don't want to I don't want to trigger the person to do something they weren't thinking of as if I don't know, it might seem absurd. You're not putting an idea in their head. They either think that and have worked their way to that point or they haven't. Uh, but but is that something that you commonly run into is people just don't want to say the wrong thing? Absolutely. And actually, you know, I myself and I'm an attempt survivor. And a couple summers ago, um, someone that I called when I realized I had one more resource. So I called this friend and she took me to the hospital and she sat with me and she held my hand the whole time while I waited to go into the one unit. And she and I spoke a couple summers ago and she cried and she said, I'm sorry, I didn't know what to say that day. And I said, what are you talking about? She goes, I just didn't know what to say. I said, you showed up. And so that power of presence and just letting me know that she was there simply by a hold of the hand or literally driving as we're both wiping our tears to get me to the help I needed was worth its weight in gold. That that makes an awful lot of sense. And the website really drives home that point as well by saying, you know, your role in that moment is to listen, really listen and let the person know that they are supported. And it uses quotes like, I'm right here with you. I mean, that you might not know what else to say, but if you are there and you tell them, I'm here with you, let's let's get through this, that's more powerful than anything that you could come up with anyway. Absolutely. And even to the point, you know, in different roles I've even held, even getting down on the person's level. So if that person is sitting against the wall and tearful, then if it's safe, you know, using your best judgment, May I sit with you? And getting down, literally sitting right next to them alongside, you know, them on the wall and, you know, talk to me about, you know, how you're feeling or could I just sit right here with you? I want you to know that I'm right here. You know, and it's uh, not to deviate from such a compelling story that you just told and, and this moment that you can imagine a lot of people finding themselves in, but it makes sense even on a, a level of the, the the brain science where I've I've read a lot about uh, people, for example, in a depressive episode or in uh, the throes of addiction where they have the functional MRI studies to show that when the person is all caught up in that moment, the scan lights up like a Christmas tree in one part of the brain where it's the seat of emotion. It's the seat of impulsive, uh, impulsive decision making. But when they're asked to talk about it, put it into words, now the frontal lobe gets it literally draws the energy away as they try to crystallize it into language. So it's it's good for the time, being the, your best friend in that moment, but it's also good to uh, perhaps drain the energy from, from where they've taken themselves. 100%, Patrick, and you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's a physical health crisis. That person is in a crisis moment. And when we pause and to look at it that way, it even kind of speaks to why we've changed our language talking about suicide. You know, I'm sure you've heard me already say die by suicide. There was the use of the word commit for years and years and years. And we've done a really good job of trying to let that go because no one commits a heart attack, right? Right. 
So people commit crimes. Exactly. <laughs> so it comes with a punitive right. context. And that, what does that do? It perpetuates the stigma. It makes people feel a sense of guilt or shame or embarrassment. So by saying, you know, are you having thoughts about suicide? Are you thinking of killing yourself? Or that person died by suicide, just like we would say if that someone died by the reason being a heart attack. Or a stroke, some other brain event. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, there were some other quotes on the website that I loved. I mean, just that moment of sitting with someone and saying things like, the fact that you are thinking about suicide tells me that something significant is going on. But the good news, so you're transitioning, is the good news is that there is help available. Um, how, how would you recommend people suggest the benefit of professional help? Or, or and you've mentioned just reaching out to peers, which can be enormously helpful. But how do you suggest that when it's not like having a heart attack? It's not like cancer. And you might tell your golfing buddy or, you know, your, your book club friend that, you know, you got a diagnosis of cancer, but people are, you know, despite the the, the progress in language and uh, the prevalence of this, so a lot of people dealing with it, there's still that that feeling of being guarded and private about something like this. 100%. And the thing is, each person is different, like we've been discussing. And one of the ways is to gauge if, if maybe you know that that person maybe has had some significant trauma or, you know, maybe they didn't have the best go at counseling the first time. It's important to be sensitive to that, but at the same time still list that as a protective factor, but trying to also pull out those support systems in tandem because we know that, I mean, and it's historically, I believe in the country, 56 0.4% of people feel like they don't have the appropriate mental health access. This is not a secret. But that's all the more reason to help them pull out some of those other protective factors. And another piece to this would be leaning on the 988 number. Should people want help, there is that crisis number, that crisis lifeline. And let's talk about that because I'm sure a lot of people just aren't even aware that it exists, but this is nationwide. It's a network which connects you with more local resources, but it's just calling 988. Yes. Instead of 911, you can call 988. You can also text. uh, You text the word talk to 741741. So 988 for a call or text 741741. Now, if you get connected with a local resource, t- tell me how does this play out for somebody calling? So, again, it's anonymous. You don't have to share your name. And you can actually even take it another step further. So there's calling, there's texting. You can actually visit 988lifeline.org, and they have a chat feature. So all the people that are responding are trained crisis counselors. And so be it if it's the individual that's struggling or maybe you're worried about your neighbor and just don't know what to say, or maybe you're sitting there right there with somebody who's struggling and saying, I ran out of words to say, can we put, you know, this call on speaker and let's talk to somebody together. So there's a number of reasons why people call this number. But when you call in, you know, they'll they'll just ask you some questions. You know, what what brought you here today? What, you know, what are you thinking? Um, tell tell us where you are. And 
truly, you know, I think there's a misconception that they think, oh my gosh, I'm going to call this number and I'm immediately going to be taken somewhere. Well, less than 2% of calls results in actual engagement with another party that's going to be either, you know, some kind of emergency personnel. But the whole point of 988, they follow a policy which is imminent risk policy. So that whole thing leads to providing support in the least restrictive setting, i.e. being able to call even if you're sitting in your car. Right. Yeah. And and without the fear that one, it's going to cost you something, it isn't, that everybody's going to know what's on your mind now. It's completely confidential. It's available 24-7, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you're not going to, you know, the the police are not going to knock down your door and come in, you know, because you called here. It's and, and I think that's probably because, like you said, a lot of the callers might just be the one trying to provide the support and just feeling like, I am out of my depth here. This is over my head. What can you suggest? Because that itself, and we can talk about this when we come back from a break, but the the experience of those maybe left behind when a loved one dies by suicide, uh, the, the, they're, they're second-guessing themselves, the maybe some some guilt, Um, you know, there's a whole unique experience to being in that club. And and so having this available even to people trying to be supportive is wonderful. But we'll come back from a break and talk more with Lauren Marshall from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. You're listening to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580. It's the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. Now your host, Patrick Colley. I'm speaking today with Lauren Marshall from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Their website is AFSP.org. And before the break, Lauren, we were talking about the 988 Lifeline. So people can go to 988lifeline.org and use the chat feature. They can call 988, just those three numbers, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, they can call if they are the one who is having a, a struggle, a mental health struggle, thinking about suicide, any of these crisis experiences. But you can also call this number if you are the one trying to provide support to 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 talk someone through this moment. And maybe you feel like you're just uh, you don't know what to say. You can call in somebody who can help. It's a it's a trained uh, professional. And the other option is to text the word talk to 741741. So this is a, a fantastic resource. And uh, was I right earlier, this is a nationwide thing. And it's not just suicide prevention, it's mental health in general. Um, but but tell me more, what, what else do people need to know about uh, 988? So it is nationwide. And one of the other things that we do is uh, there's opportunities for people to become field advocates. So that kind of plays into public policy. Now, 988, um, this is still something that we need to have sustainability. It came around because of the word parity, the need to weigh mental health and physical health the same. And so we have 911 for those physical health emergencies. And so 988 came to help with that specific mental health need. Now, there's still lots to be done to make sure it stays in place and that it's properly moderated um, and that, you know, the communities that need it most have it. So there's opportunities on our website, which you can break down even by state, what the areas of advocacy are, because 988 is definitely a part of that. 
Sure. And I'm glad you pointed that out, that the sort of this parity with physical health and mental health and having the, those resources available, because, I mean, in Pennsylvania alone, we've seen what happens when you take away uh, various mental health resources and all of a sudden corrections officers are called on to be mental health professionals. I mean, and the police, I'm sure they get tons of training and they do uh, heroic work. But I'm sure that's not what they signed up for, you know, to to be counselors. They they just don't. That's not necessarily their training and background. But that's exactly what they're they're called on to do if the only option is nine one one. So enter nine eight eight as another solution. Uh, perfect. And and I I'm I'm reading between the lines of what you're saying because uh, you know we're in election season as well and and maybe you're talking you're talking about you know ask your elected officials or other people about what their level of support is because you know it, it, I I know that you have a volunteer network at AFSP but um, it takes a little bit more in the way of resources to keep something like nine eight eight going absolutely and we actually have our advocates they march to. The Capitol every year. They go to D.C. every year. Uh, they have one-to-one conversations with representatives. We've always been incredibly welcomed by the state and by the country. Um, it allows to talk about and give a little bit of a personal story why this stuff matters, yeah. you know, why these interventions matter. And that 988 number, you know, there's abilities for people to connect. If English isn't their first language, they can connect with someone. Veterans can select option one to speak with people that are trained to work with veterans as well. That's fantastic. And yeah, this is not uh, a, a life experience that cares what your your political affiliation is or how much money you have. It happens to everybody. So I would imagine it would be welcomed by by those in the, in the role of making policy. And speaking of of marching and, and events, you, you there is a big event coming up on November 18th. Talk to me about that. Yes. So it's International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day. And this is a special event. It's actually held globally. I mean, there are tons of places in the United States. There's even, you know, global following. Um, But this takes place the Saturday before Thanksgiving historically. And it's an opportunity for people to come together that have been affected by suicide. So whether they've lost somebody or maybe we even see people that just have an interest because they're trying to support another lost survivor. And so we come together. The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention usually puts out a video. This year it's going to be more about, um, again, those underrepresented communities and what that looks like when you're trying to cope. And so we go through the videos. There's usually some kind of connectivity, whether it's a craft or it's a discussion, um, ways to memorialize those you've loved coming into the holiday season especially, Uh, Something to mark those moments in a positive way and truly a place to just be. You mentioned it's a club. Yeah, it's a club that nobody wants to be a part of. But so true. Even myself, you know, as a volunteer for nearly five years, I found a place that I call legit my family because of the welcomingness of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And being a survivor of you know, survivor of suicide loss day. I mean, being a survivor, it's more than a club. It's it's such a unique human experience where you can't talk about it the same way, or some people feel they can't talk about it. You can, but there's that reluctance to talk about it. And tell me about even the nonverbal cues. You were mentioning people wearing beads. Talk about that. Oh, yes. 
So, and we usually do this at every event. So the International Survivor of Suicide Loss Day, we have ones in Central PA taking place in Mount Joy, as well as in Camp Hill. But if you visit our website, you can easily do a search to find ones near you. But the beads, you'll see them at a lot of events and they're different color beads and they're attributed to different types of losses. So if, you know, if somebody's wearing teal beads, that means they support the cause. If somebody's wearing green beads, that means that they have, you know, concerns and they've navigated mental health struggles of their own. Maybe if they have white beads that they've lost a child, maybe silver beads they've lost somebody in the military. What this allows for is those nonverbal connections. So if I'm sitting across from you, Patrick, and I see, you know, that you're wearing teal beads and you're part of my crew that says, yes, I am with you on this mission to stop suicide. I care about this. That does a whole lot for being able to just be present with someone because you can connect without words right then and there. And you have some other programs uh, that would be more local. Of course, people listening to this show across the country, uh, AFSP.org can direct you to a local chapter and resources. But here in South Central Pennsylvania, you have a program called Talk Saves Lives. Yes, it's wonderful. And we're always looking for volunteers to help facilitate these. And may I mention, all these programs are free to the community. Talk Saves Lives goes over a lot of the risk factors, the warning factors, things that we can do to, you know, help again with that space, making sure somebody's getting resources they need. It's a non-clinical program. Talk Saves Lives is done in different buckets. So there's different populations we serve. One of my favorite that I sat through during the pandemic was actually Talk Saves Lives for Seniors. And there was a woman who facilitated it and she was 75 years old. So she had a personal connection. And as a volunteer, it was part of her mission to bring this education into the public. So again, there's it's very, very special and we can fine tune it to whatever that organization wants. And they can be whether it's in person or it can be in a virtual capacity. And this is great because listeners today might not be preparing just for the later years of their own life, but they have children, they have grandchildren. I mean, you have some of these programs that are just for college kids, for, uh, you know, for other age groups. And it just to know that this resource is out there is fantastic. A hundred percent. And we have actually, um, so it's called It's Real. That's our one for college kids. And then we have a program called More Than Sad. And that's for the high school age folks. And so these are both on the website. You can read more about all the programs. And it also tells you next steps. If it's something that's meaningful that you would like to implement or bring to the school, there's resources there that can help you take it, you know, there. And of course, you can always reach out to national or to us at the Eastern PA chapter, and we can help you figure out next steps to do that. So these are all ways to uh, join what is really a volunteer network. It is a, a you know, grassroots effort, and, and if it's important to people, the, the effort can get stronger. So that's, I, I love that you're, you're inviting people and to, to join your mission. Wonder. Yeah, absolutely, Patrick. And you know, we actually had, you talk about the numbers. I mean, we also do, we have out of the darkness walks every year. So they're very well attended. And that's something that takes place across the country. Our Harrisburg Walk, I believe we set a record. There was over 2,000 people that showed up to walk for the Out of the Darkness Walk. So talk about camaraderie. It's there. That's fantastic. 
So when I say at the outset of all of these episodes of the Later in Life Planning Show that we believe at Keystone Elder Law in building a shield against these costs and challenges of the later years of life, hopefully last week, this week with with Lauren Marshall, it, it shows that there are emotional challenges and that there are resources. And while we hope to tend to some of those needs at Keystone Elder Law, We're bringing in these resources like the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and I hope that this is something you'll spread to people in your life who could use this information. Thank you, Lauren, for being here today. Thank you, Patrick. Join me again next week for another episode of the Later in Life Planning Show sponsored by Keystone Elder Law right here on News Radio WHP 580.